0: We've all had someone lie about us, but imagine that the lie is that you murdered a loved one. In today's episode, we'll untangle a mess of lies and unveil the jaw-dropping truth behind a murder that was all about revenge. Not toward the victim, but against a member of the victim's family. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, Private Investigator Lori Morrison. I'm really glad that you've joined me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening, I believe that you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator like me, but a person of impact. This is Season 4, Episode 48. We're finishing up our book from last week, We Thought We Knew You, a terrifying true story of secrets, betrayal, deception, and murder. And we're going to welcome back Licensed Counselor and Pastor David Brannock as our guest for this week. We're going to check in with David again after we investigate the rest of this fascinating case of the murder of Mary Yoder. Last week, we started looking into the sudden and shocking death of Dr. Mary Yoder. The 60-year-old chiropractor had died of colchicine poisoning, and no one knew how she could have come in contact with it. If it wasn't accidental, then it was time to start looking at suspects. Of course, investigators, like they always do, began with the people who were closest to Mary. Her son, Adam, and his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Caitlin, or Katie, had both worked at the clinic with Mary and her chiropractor husband, William. Katie was flaky and Adam was obsessed with her, but did they have anything to gain from Mary's death? What if Mary's own sisters called police and told them they needed to take a closer look at Bill? Someone sent an anonymous letter to police telling them exactly who the letter sender thought had killed Mary. They said it was Adam, her son. The letter writer claimed that Adam had confessed and even alerted authorities to the fact that they could find the rest of the poison in Adam's 1991 Jeep Wrangler. Authorities wondered if Bill was the anonymous letter writer, but would he really implicate his own son? In speaking with the oldest Yoder child, Leanna, they learned that Adam had been visiting her when Mary first became sick. Still, investigators needed to talk with Adam, so they asked him to come in to answer some questions. And he was very cooperative. He even allowed them to search his Jeep. And that was where they found a bottle of colchicine hiding under the front passenger side seat. Adam claimed he'd never seen the bottle before. So how did the letter writer know it was there? Did they put it there themselves? Investigators combed through the chiropractic clinic's records, and there it was. An order for colchicine, and the signature on the order was Adam's. Katie had signed for the delivery. So was Katie the letter writer? Police were still fixed on Mary's husband, Bill, but admitted that they needed to talk to Katie, too. She knew how the clinic was run, and she was also there the day Mary got sick. The email account used to order the colchicine used Adam's name, but he said that that email was not his. As an owner of the clinic, Adam's dad, Bill, had access to all the accounts used by employees of the clinic. But so did Katie. It was time to have her come in for a sit-down. She appeared to be eager to help. And a few days after her interview, results on the DNA left under the stamps on the anonymous letter came back, and it was female. Investigators remembered that Katie had made a point to tell them that she put stamps on all the outgoing mail from the clinic. That's not really something that most people would think was important, certainly not important enough to make sure they let investigators know, unless they felt the need to explain why their DNA just might be in a seemingly incriminating spot. While these interviews were going on, techs were working in the background, going through computer files, and prosecutors were applying for dozens of subpoenas. The investigation really came into focus when Tex discovered that one of the IP addresses that had been used to access that email account that Adam said wasn't his, that IP address had been tracked to Katie's home address. She had some explaining to do. Investigators asked Katie to come back in for another chat. They had learned as they sorted through text between Adam and Katie that it was just two weeks before Mary ingested that poison that Adam had flatly rejected the idea that he and Katie might get back together. It didn't take the experienced interrogators long to get Katie to admit to writing the anonymous letter, but she said she only did it because Adam had confessed to her. She told them that she was afraid that Adam was setting her up. Katie denied ever touching the bottle of colchicine, but like the letter, it too had traces of female DNA. They asked her if she thought Adam could have poisoned his own mother. She said she believed he could. Incredibly, she said that it was strange to think of him using poison, since that was typically a lady's weapon. Then she just sat there and smiled. Even though no one in her life had seemed to put these pieces together, investigators could see that her answers to their questions were typical of a person with antisocial and narcissistic tendencies. The more she tried to place the blame on Adam or even Bill, the more investigators brought up facts that pointed directly to her. She was backed into a corner, but she would not admit to having poisoned Mary. It took a few more weeks to tie up loose ends in the investigation, but Katie was eventually arrested for Mary's murder. People in the community could hardly believe it. I call it pretty girl syndrome, and I've seen it happen in my own cases. We don't want to accept the fact that attractive people or successful people or people with impressive titles can commit terrible crimes, but remember, there were signs that all was not right with Katie. She'd vandalized the car of an ex-boyfriend. She'd lied to Adam multiple times to try to keep him tied to her. One big lesson I want everybody to learn here, if you remember nothing else from this episode, remember this. When people tell you who they are by how they act, believe them. There are still, all these years later, people who believe in Katie's innocence even after a jury convicted her of manslaughter in a second trial after a hung jury in the first trial. And she was sent away for 23 years. Incredibly, three of Mary's sisters supported Katie, unable to let go of their suspicions of Bill. As the author wrote in this book, there are soul-sucking humans in this world. The question is, how do we recognize them? We'll talk a bit about that with our guest and in our scripture for this episode. Last week, we we really set up a lot of the backstory and the, the background of how this particular case came about. We talked a lot about overly enmeshed relationships, controlling relationships, and we saw that this family was dealing with a sudden death, which is difficult enough for any family. But then to find out that this was a murder, We all process things differently and every situation is different, but share with us some of the difficulties in processing your grief when the death is, I don't know how to say, somewhat unusual.
1: Yes, being sudden, that is always a a shock and, and difficult. All these questions, you know, what happened? Is there something we could have done differently? Anything we could have to change the outcome? And then to find out that it was a murder, that it wasn't just a car wreck or a heart attack or something, it it didn't have to happen, but it did. That upped the anger and the hurt, you know, exponentially. I I would hope that someone is ever in that situation that they would find a trusted pastor or therapist, somebody to talk to, to be able to help them work through that a uh, grief support group, somewhere where where they can have some help, because that would not be a journey that anybody should walk through alone.
0: I love that. That's wonderful. And not dissing pastors at all, but some are a little better at this sort of thing than others. So it's okay to, if you have a pastor that maybe isn't trained in trauma-based therapy, it's okay to find a counselor. I know a lot of times in churches, especially, people think that that's just kind of taboo. And since you're a counselor and a pastor, I want you to address that for us.
1: When I was serving as a full-time pastor, when church members would come to me, I would tell them right off the bat, I am not a trained counselor. What I will provide to you is pastoral care. I will listen to you. I will share scripture with you. I will pray for you that sort of thing. I'll do the best I can. But, you know, just because I went to seminary doesn't mean that I have this counseling expertise. I I would be very clear about that so that they would know what they were getting and then refer if it got over my head. As far as the church, currently I am writing a play, a musical called Losing My Mind, and it actually deals with the stigma of therapy in the church and I have a sequence where the main character is going to her therapist and the therapist walks through and shows how popular secular psychological theories, you can find their roots in scripture. You know, I'll give you one example, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, very popular, very effective, lots and lots of evidence. The Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, in the book of Romans, said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, that's what CBT is. Change your thoughts, then change your feelings and your actions. There's other scriptures that I could reference for that as well, as well as some other theories. But the point is, is that it does not have to be a huge disconnect between quote, biblical counseling, unquote, and these other theories, whatever is is true, all truth, is going to ultimately be based on God and God's word, whether we realize it or not. Also, in that play, I, I referenced the fact that there are two books in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned, the books of Esther and the Song of Solomon. And yet, I would say those two books are just as sacred as the other 64 in the Holy Bible, whether God's name is mentioned or not, God is still at work and effective truth is still truth. So it's okay if a pastor says, I've reached the limits of what I can do for you based on your trauma, I I can pray for you, I can share scripture, but if somebody needs a little bit more to uh, refer to somebody who has a, a little more training and knowledge. And expertise in that area. and There's no shame in that.
0: That is just really, really insightful. I love that. I've never heard it explained quite that way. And I think that it's wonderful because you've just made it accessible and you've made a way for people to explain, hey, this is why I'm doing this if they're getting any pushback. And uh, I need tickets to opening night for that play. That sounds <laughs> phenomenal. Thank you. I can't wait. And of course, any time there is a suspicious death, once they decide that it's a murder, it's not uncommon at all for the people closest to the victim to be looked at as potential suspects. So Mary's husband, very obviously, is going to be one of the first ones. And he didn't really help himself by rather quickly becoming involved with his late wife's sister, of all people. When families don't approve of how we're handling our grief, because that was his attempt at handling his grief, I have no idea if they're still together or not. But one of the other sisters basically called the police and said, hey, you need to look at my brother-in-law because this one sister's dead and he's already talking to this other sister. So what What do we do when grief gets messy?
1: Hmm, yes, grief Grief does get messy. So the sister called the police on her brother-in-law. Wow. Um,
0: yeah, I told you this was a while.
1: Yes. I'm surprised that the, well, I shouldn't say I'm surprised. What I would hope would have happened first was that the one sister would have talked to the sister seeing this, you know, first to find out her side of the story and kind of what's going on instead of immediately picking up the phone and and calling the police. Talking to the individual first is better instead of talking around somebody or about somebody. So many issues could be resolved easier in families if they would talk to each other instead of talking to someone else about that person that they have an issue with.
0: Yeah, it was very interesting to me. You had the enmeshment on one side that we talked about, but you also had this estrangement. Once the police cleared William, I don't know if that sister ever in her mind really cleared him, but then suspicion kind of shifted to Adam. And... It was very easy for people to jump on that bandwagon. Oh yeah, of course the husband did it because this was also a small community. So the community's all talking about this as well. Or, well, it wasn't him. Well, okay, I can get behind thinking that that it was Adam. But when suspicion finally started to center on Caitlin where it needed to, everybody seemed shocked. People rallied to her defense. And I've worked plenty of cases with pretty girls at the center of them that I think are killers. So I don't get why it's so hard to believe that pretty young women can do awful things. You got to help me out on this one. Why Why are we so incapable of believing that certain types of people would never do certain types of bad behaviors?
1: In First Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart. And we so often look at the outward appearance. And if somebody looks a certain way, if somebody has a certain amount of money, if somebody has a certain last name, then our bias kicks in and we tend to want to give them a pass and say, oh, there's no way, you know, whereas if they looked differently, if they had less money, if they had a different last name, oh, they're probably guilty. So our bias definitely kicks in. And... We have a lot of unintentional biases, biases we don't even realize that we have. There are little quizzes you can take to show where your biases lie. We all have them. We all have partiality towards things. So if something looks pretty and shiny and looks new and expensive, or, you know, sit on the front row of church, well, that must be a good person. There's no way they could ever do that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, in the right set of circumstances, are capable of anything.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I've, I've talked about this before some, we can wrap our brains around the fact that any of us could be a victim, but we don't like to wrap our brains around or e- even consider the fact that any of us are capable of being perpetrators as well.
1: Yes, it, it's not a pleasant thought, but to say it in the right set of circumstances, we get backed in a corner, whatever the a series of choices and there we are and we're and that's why things happen where we're popular people all from grace. Well, I never thought that would happen. Well, faced a set of circumstances or made a series of choices and it's there they were.
0: And I think, too, we downplay the fact that especially in a crime like this that was, and we'll get into this in a minute, the level of premeditation, these people don't want to get caught. So they're not going to go around looking or acting guilty. They're going to try very hard to look and act just the opposite. How can we kind of discern a little better someone's true character versus what they are showing us?
1: Watch what they do and listen to what they say. Watch what they do first because that will give you the most evidence. And people can say anything, but what people actually do, that reveals where they are. With somebody like Caitlin, who was trying to put the blame on Adam, trying to, oh, it wasn't me. Then you start looking at the patterns. What is the evidence there? She said she was pregnant. Did she let Adam see the doctor records? Probably not. You know, she said that she was going to take her life. She said all these things. And after a while, I was like, why is she going to all these lengths? What is that about?
0: The word patterns jumped out okay. at me because that implies you've got to watch over time. Yes. Yes. You know, I think in our culture, you know, the microwave culture, we want everything now. We want to make snap decisions on everything. Mm-hmm. But character is proven over time.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Character is built over time. Who we are and unfortunately good character can be destroyed in a minute. But who somebody is, yes, over time we see, does somebody have consistently good character or does somebody have consistently bad character?
0: I mentioned a minute ago the level of planning that she put into this crime, not only the crime itself, but then framing Adam for it. I mean, this was off the charts, high planning. You know, a lot of crimes are a spur of the moment, heat of passion. Even the ones that are planned, I've not worked on any where somebody put this much effort into it. And the total disregard for human life, the way she killed Mary, someone else could have gotten into what poisoned her as well. And that didn't concern her. So aside from somebody having a complete and total and true religious conversion, like Saul on the road to Damascus, he'd been a murderer, he persecuted and killed Christians and then became the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. How likely are people on their own to seek treatment for this and really be able to get this kind of not caring about people under control? Or is that just someone that you just have to steer clear of?
1: For someone, if, if they don't have empathy, and it sounds like Caitlin was somebody who did not have empathy, just did not care, she is extremely unlikely to seek. Any kind of mental health treatment on her own, short of a uh, a hard change, supernatural hard change, even if she was made to go. If she's not receptive to it, then, you know, you can't make somebody have empathy. But people without empathy, they, I'd say, I yeah, you steer clear from them because they don't care what happens to you. It's all about them. And that's their whole goal is how can they make themselves have their needs met at your expense. Ultimately, you're you're deemed expendable if it comes to that.
0: And thank you for adding at your expense, because I think a lot of us get caught up in these relationships where people are taking advantage of us to a greater or lesser degree because we feel like we can help them, we can fix them especially I think for women and especially for people of faith, we feel like that's somehow our duty. We will put ourselves at risk to help someone who we don't have the tools to help. Going back to boundaries that we talked about, going back to, I love how you call them guardrails. You would not drive, I hope, on a super windy mountainous hillside really fast on the ice when there's no guardrails there. Yet we will do those sorts of things in personal relationships thinking that somehow we're obligated to people. So help us break that myth.
1: People that want to control us will try to guilt us and say, yes, that we're obligated, that it's our fault, that they're unhappy, or that if we try to distance ourselves to set a healthy boundary, that we're somehow responsible for their discomfort, their distress. And we are responsible to one another, but we're not responsible for one another when we're talking about adults. Parents are responsible for their children. But once you're of age, you know, I'm responsible to you, Laurie, but I'm not responsible for you. In other words, you make your own choice. If me setting a boundary, you don't like it. Well, I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt you. And you're my friend. But ultimately, I can't control how you respond. And, you know, it's up to you to deal with your reaction to my boundary and vice versa. So that manipulation of trying to get people to say, well, you need to do this for me because it's your fault that I feel this way. No, you choose to feel that way. That's your stuff you got to go figure out why you feel that way, why it bothers you so much. You know, I'm not responsible for your feelings. You're responsible for your feelings, and I'm responsible for mine.
0: That is such a great reminder. Again, especially as we're here in the holiday season and we're around a lot of people that maybe have a lot of expectations for us or for the holiday itself, get disappointed if it doesn't Mm -hmm. work out exactly the way it should. So I hope that's been great encouragement to people. And I also want to touch on something, you know, as churches, we need to be able to set some boundaries when people inside the church, whether it's a member or even a leader, we need to be able to set boundaries that if they are behaving badly, they are going to be held accountable. That's really tough for us to want to do.
1: Yes, it is, especially if that person who is in a position of leadership, they have a certain last name, if they have a certain position in the church, that bias kicks in. We feel like, well, maybe we should give them a pass. And then there's also verses of the Bible can be twisted and used to excuse, oh, well, you know, judge not that you not be judged. Well, first of all, that flies all over me because to the way I understand that, to judge somebody means to look down on them. Like, I'm better than you. Jesus said we are to be fruit inspectors. You know, we are to evaluate. And if we evaluate and we know, and Jesus himself said, we will know a tree by its fruit. And if a tree is bearing bad fruit, that's not judging to say, hey, this tree, these apples have worms in them. You know, there's something going on here that's not right. That's not being judgmental. That's the body being accountable. Or, well, we're just supposed to forgive. Well, yeah, we are supposed to forgive, but also we are called to repent. And I, you know, I'd like to see some some repentance on the part of the person doing the bad behavior before you come at me saying, I got to forgive.
0: Yes, that one really, really gets me to... And I like to ask people the question, okay, so if you had all your money for retirement, for whatever, in this bank, and you found out that one of the tellers had just taken off with it, they had been embezzling forever, your money was now at risk, and then that person pays the penalty, and they come back to the bank, and the bank hires them again says, well, you know, they said they were sorry, they're not going to take your money anymore, you would be livid. And yet, we'll let people who we know have abused children work in the children's ministry. We will invite people that we know have abused our loved ones to our homes for family gatherings. At some point, people have got to matter more than our investments.
1: Yes, yes. I preached a sermon a few weeks back where where I talked about uh, people wanting to overlook and ignore and let people have the chance to reoffend when they should not be allowed to have the chance to reoffend, and I made the statement I said the gospel calls us to have mercy the gospel does not call us to be eat up with stupid
0: I love that I'm I'm going to have to steal that or borrow it we'll we'll call it borrow it okay. I'll I'll attribute it to you though <laughs> and on that note I want to make sure that everybody who wants to get in contact with you because you you counsel in the East Tennessee area, you supply pulpit needs in that same area, you've written a book, you're working on on more stuff, which again, I need tickets to that. So if someone wants to get in touch with you, David, what is the best way for them to do that?
1: My email address, uh, davidebranick at gmail.com.
0: All right. And I'll put that in the show notes, links to all that, because like I said before, David just has such... Gentle wisdom. It's so easy to absorb it because of the way you frame things. I just can't thank you enough for sharing that gentle wisdom with us again.
1: Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you so much for having me back on your program.
0: Oh, well, we'll have to do it again.
1: I look forward to it.
0: We are back in Proverbs this week for a Bible passage because this book of the Bible is just so practical. So this is from the New Living Translation, and it's Proverbs 20, verse 11. Even children are known by the way they act, whether their conduct is pure and whether it is right. Do you remember me saying that when people tell you who they are by how they act, believe them? I didn't just pull that out of thin air. It's biblical. We can assess a person's character by the way they act. Katie could put on a good front when she wanted to. But her true character couldn't help but leak out when she didn't get her way. She not only killed Mary, but think about the emotional damage she's done to Mary's family and friends and even that entire community. So let's all take a good look at the people in our lives and those close to our loved ones. Are they leaking out any concerning behaviors that might signal bad character? If you see that, ask yourself, Are you going to set healthy boundaries for that person or make excuses? Our decisions can have tremendous impact on our physical, emotional, and even spiritual welfare. Let me know what you think about today's episode. You can send me an email at laurie at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at The Unlovely Truth or on Instagram at The Unlovely Truth Podcast. You can even find me on LinkedIn at The Unlovely Truth. I love it when people give me feedback and are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.